looking forward to a great conversation this afternoon on the topic of uh, another plan A, preparing for a non-academic career, what's a scholar to do? Um, I want to start by saying that we don't have a lot of concrete advice. This is not going to be an outline to map out how you do this, in part because there's not just one way to think about moving out of the academic track and into a non-academic role, um, which I think is really well represented by the group of people that we have up here, and actually also the panels that we've had the last two years at AAR. Um, last year's group is actually available as a podcast on the AAR's uh, podcast channel that you might want to check out. Um, so my name is Chrissy Hutchison-Jones. I am the chair of the new Applied Religious Studies Working Group that's just gotten started this year at AAR because um, we finally sort of gathered momentum and concentrated it, thanks to Robert Puckett in large part, who's the director of meetings here at AAR, uh, to really address the issue that um, when you combine the job market and the general stresses and shape of what an academic role really looks like, lots of people don't end up going into faculty positions after graduate study in religion and theology. And we have not been very good um, institutionally, as a professional organization, and in our discipline at helping scholars think about how to take their graduate education into careers that are not on that academic path. So we want to keep, we want to get this conversation going and sort of move it forward. We're very excited to hear from you what questions you have and what kind of supports you think you, you could see happening that would make a difference for you, both within AAR and also maybe things that we can work with uh, local departments and even faculty on building up supports for um, scholars who are moving into non-academic career paths. Um, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time introducing our panelists because I'd actually like to start by having them tell you a little bit about who they are and how they got where they are now. But I'll just let you know that um, in order to my right, we have Emily Mace, who is the Chicago Digital Humanities Coordinator at Lake Forest College. Uh, beside her is Robert Jones, who is the CEO of the Public Religion Research Institute. Uh, you've probably seen some of his work in the last couple of years uh, trying to help us understand the role religion has played in American electoral politics uh, in this most recent election season. Um, next in line is Jason Blakeburn, who's a PhD candidate in philosophy and religious studies at McGill University. And um, I think it's important we have PhD candidates in this conversation because it's not just about those of us who've already made the transition, it's about folks who are working on making the transition now and the experiences they're having. And finally, on the end is Regina Walton, who is the rector at Grace Episcopal Church in Newton, Massachusetts, and counselor to the Episcopal and Anglican students at Harvard Divinity School. Uh, so to kick us off, guys, I would like you to do a little bit of autobiography. Who are you? What did you study? Why did you study it? And how did you end up not in academia? I guess I'll go first, since I'm sitting next to Chrissy here. Um, again, I'm Emily Mace, and right now I am the Chicago Digital Humanities Coordinator at Lake Forest College, but I didn't set out to be a digital humanities person. I, I went into um, graduate school fully planning and expecting to be a professor of American religious history. Um, 
and I kind of had blinders on about that too. Um, I was getting my MTS at Harvard Divinity, Divinity School back in 2001 to 2003. Scares me to think about how long ago that was now. Um, and while there, I, I met someone who is also, who at the time was also interested in American religious history. We eventually got married, so that's sort of part of the complication here. Um, and along the way, I made a series of choices that I think, looking back, relate to being in an alternative academic track. Um, one of those choices was I chose to take a year off between my master's degree and PhD program in order to kind of refine my personal statement, kind of really get concrete about what I was hoping to do. And during that time, I worked at an academic library. Well, we'll get back to the academic library later. Um, so then I ended up at Princeton University for my PhD, and there was not very much there in the way of thinking about alternative academic careers. You know, we all kind of assumed, again, that we were going to be on the academic track. Um, and that's what I, what I kept assuming for, for a good long while. But again, I, I kept making various choices that I think along the way um, led towards alternative academic trajectory. Uh, one of those choices was to do my dissertation writing from afar with the man that I had met at Harvard Divinity School, who by that point was my husband. I didn't want a commuter marriage. Um, I was very clear in, in thinking about that, but I didn't really think through the implications of that in terms of how that might play out in terms of our career trajectories. Uh, so then I followed him to this tiny college in Appalachia to, to do my dissertation writing, which was a sort of strange place to do dissertation writing. I didn't have the research library anymore. Um, but I got it done, and I got some adjuncting work. When, and, and I also got experience working for an online digital library called Harvard Square Library that happened to relate to the subject of my academic research. Um, and I could do that at a distance. So I was cobbling things together for a while. I was adjuncting. I was working for this digital library. Then when my husband got a job at Lake Forest College outside of Chicago, we sprang at it because there likely would be a lot more options for either one of us, presumably now me, to find something to do that would be interesting than there were in the place we were living. So again, choices and thinking about you know, where one wants to live um, came into play with this as well. And I ended up in my current position largely by happenstance. I worked in the circulation desk for a couple of years part-time. I had made the decision I did not want to be adjuncting full-term, full-time. Um, we can talk later about why not, why I decided I didn't want to do that. Uh, but, but I ended up in the right place at the right time when the college got a four-year, $800,000 Mellon grant studying the history of Chicago at just the time period I'd written about in my dissertation. So. It was sort of happenstance that I just happened to be at the right place in the right time. And um, thus far, it's been a happy coincidence. And I'll let my fellow panelists say more about where they're from. All right. Um, so I, I loved all the twists and turns, because I think that's the story. Um, life is not linear, right? Um, and uh, so I set out. I was a computer science and math undergrad who then felt the call to ministry, went to seminary. Uh, and in my last year of seminary, uh, I was Southern Baptist, and it was the last year that the uh, kind of conservative resurgence in the Southern Baptist Convention happened. And the whole seminary imploded my last year, my last semester, actually, of, of seminary. They fired the president, 
escorted him off campus with armed guards. I mean, it was essentially a coup um, at the uh, seminary. Uh, which put the last nail in the coffin to my ministry plans. Um, I just thought I didn't really want to go that direction um, anymore. Um, and then I spent a couple of years just hanging out in Dallas trying to figure out what in the hell I wanted to do after that. Um, and uh, and then applied to a PhD program at Emory in ethics and society. I'd always been interested in politics and religion um, and got in there. And then really did catch the academic bug. And I thought, all right, yeah, I really do want to do this academic thing. And I remember, though, a professor at seminary just saying to me, look, if you, if you think of graduate school as an end in itself, great. Right? If you think of it as a means to an end, like, don't fool yourself. Um, right? And it was actually pretty good advice. But I, I actually thought of it, it was helpful that I thought of it that way. That, like, it was, I wanted, uh, I, I mean, I basically wanted it to change me, right? To sort of change the way I thought things, change the way I see the world. It was important for that reason. Um, and uh, I remember that when I graduated, um, so I was in the Ethics and Society program at the GDR in, in Emory, and our program graduated four people in Ethics and Society that year, and there were six jobs in the country in that space, right? And just our program could have filled up almost the jobs that were all in, in the entire country uh, that year. Um, the uh, For crazy reasons, and I think this is also, uh, I came to find out later, um, I, I got one of those four tenure, or one of those six tenure track jobs at Missouri State University, uh, mostly because of kind of weird uh, factions inside the faculty that they could read my CV two different ways. Uh, and I was one of the few candidates that both people thought they, both factions thought they could claim. And I would kind of say that because I, I think that is important to know that that's just how these jobs go down. Uh, so many times it wasn't really like, oh, you know, me on my merits. It was that like they could actually read my CV two different ways and both factions thought I would fit. And so uh, I ended up getting more votes than anybody else in a weird kind of way. Um, and so uh, so I was there, but it was three years in, I was in a tenure track job. I thought, great, like it's, it's all perfect. Um, and, uh, you know, just to kind of make it real, got divorced. Um, which threw a wrench uh, in all of those plans, and then met someone else two years later. Uh, and so three years into my uh, PhD program, uh, I was divorced with a kid in Missouri uh, and had met someone else who had one foot out the door. She was also a professor at the uh, university and was like, there's no way I'm going to live the rest of my life in Springfield, Missouri. Uh, so, you know, if you want to be with me, you got to figure out like a way to get out of here. Um, and so that was kind of the story. I was like, okay, I'm two years away from tenure, um, you know, and what do I do? And um, at the end of the day, I was like, I'd rather be married than have a job. Um, so um, that was the choice I made. Um, and uh, so she actually left her tenured position and I left my tenure track position. Um, and we uh, were trying to figure out how to get to um, uh, kind of East Coast, more cosmopolitan city. Um, all for personal reasons, right? This had nothing to do with academic trajectory. Um, and so trying to figure out how to continue it and basically what ended up happening for me, the path was trying to get a job more in the kind of think tank world because I was, uh, so the most logical place for that is DC and I managed to land a job um, uh, at, a, at a think tank in DC um, and then managed to like coordinate this very complicated move of like, my ex-wife and my daughter and uh, my fiance and uh, my ex-wife's new partner, uh, all of this stuff to, to DC. I mean, it was like really crazy and complicated. Um, but I, I try to put all that out there because I think that's just the story. Like, Because the story I got told, right, and that I sort of believed is that there was this like linear path 
And then, like, on reflection, though, what that always depended upon, like, my white male professors, it always depended on kind of a partner who was willing to, like, just go wherever they were going to go, right, who were willing to put the professor track first and everything else kind of second. And I just think most of us today, that's just very few of us, I think, um, end up with those kinds of options. So it becomes a lot of trade-offs. Um, so for me, the path was um, working at a, a research think tank in, in uh, D.C., um, the grant, uh, they didn't really tell me this when I got the job, but it was actually grant dependent. That grant lasted about 18 months. Um, so we kind of moved everyone uh, to very expensive DC. Uh, the grant ran out, um, and then I spent about two years cobbling together um, six-month contract here, three-month contract here. It was basically kind of religion gun for hire in the think tank world um, in DC. Um, and piecing that together, um, and uh, eventually uh, re just realized that there was enough uh, momentum and stuff that uh, got a seed money grant from, um, uh, from the Nathan Cummings Foundation to try to start a new research center back in 2009 um, and talked a guy from Pew into quitting his job and helping me make it happen, um, and that's kind of been the trajectory, and we've been kind of cobbling that thing together that is now... Uh, the Public Religion Research Institute um, in DC. Um, and it's, you know, it's, I feel like I've been really lucky that it's been a kind of successful thing. But I think the nonlinearness and the just like trying to take whatever was in front of me and just make the most of whatever was in front of me and like feel it, feel my way along, I feel like that's been the thing. It's just trying to, okay, what's in front of me? How can I leverage that and make something make sense? Um, and and I, I think that's the thing I wish my graduate professor had like told me is like, you know, just kind of thinking uh, entrepreneur, more, like more like an entrepreneur and like more opportunistically um, and less like grand plan, uh, which never worked out uh, in my case anyway. So that's it. Yeah, I'm Jason Blakeburn, a current PhD student at uh, McGill University in Montreal. Uh, so for me, I've heard all of these stories from all of my professors and advisors and thought, oh man, I need to do something about this whole job thing after I graduate. Uh, partly that's from, I received, when I was applying to PhD programs or even thinking about applying, one of my professors at Boston University said to me, if you can think of anything else you'd rather do in the whole wide world and be happy at all, do that instead of going to go to PhD. And in my naive master's state, I thought, oh, I like this. I'll do this. And then I'm in the PhD, I'm like, oh, he was kind of right. So uh, I've always, so I'm, I still want to be a professor. I, I think I would love that. The more I TA, the more I read, the more I research, I still want to make the academic career happen. But when you, I look at the statistics and my colleagues, I don't think that I can. So I'm prep preparing myself for that result, and hopefully for both, and I want to be prepared for that negative one. And so to do that, I've been sort of falling into jobs uh, through the summers. Uh, so in college, I learned to sail because I had some friends who said, hey, you want to learn to sail? Sure, why not? And then I kept with that and then sailed uh, in Boston for my master's, and then one summer, uh, they needed a sailing graduate assistant. And I knew the guy who ran the program, and he was like, hey, you want to do this? Sure. Yeah, fill out this form. Okay. And then he goes, so I, I lucked into that, too, and I paid for um, a second master's with a, with a thesis with that. Um, 
and then I went to Montreal and was looking for a summer job and sent an email and said, hey, I have ran a sailing program. And they said, yeah, you want a, you want a job? Here you go. So it's just sort of looking into these things with a particular skill set um, as ways to supplement the PhD program um, as I search for jobs. So it's, I have no idea what's going to happen after this. Um, I've listened to lots of really good professors from my undergrad at Oklahoma City University to master's advisors to my current uh, doctoral advisor. We talk a lot about jobs and how there aren't any, but what to do to get those jobs that are there. So, and McGill is actually doing a really nice job of bringing up this conversation as well, not just for humanities PhDs, but all PhDs. And, and I can talk more about that later. It's actually really exciting what they're doing. But through all of this, it's just been a really intentional questioning of, hey, the job market sucks. What are you going to do about it? And trying to pr prepare myself as I go through the program for those eventualities. Thanks. Can I have a little more water, too? I'm Regina Walton, and um, I've been studying religion and literature since I was an undergraduate um, at Hampshire College in Western Mass. And uh, I went from there to Harvard Divinity School, where I studied with uh, Emily and I were there at the same time. I started in the Masters of Theological Studies program. Um, I never intended to get a doctorate. Uh, at the time, at HDS, there was a program um, called the Program in Religion and secondary education where you would, um, if you had an undergraduate degree in English or history and you got the MTS, you could also be certified to teach um, high school at the same time as getting your master's. So you would graduate with your master's in religious studies, but also um, not with a, an education master's, but be able to teach in the public schools. And that was really appealing to me at that time. Um, as I progressed at HDS, I felt a growing call to ordain ministry in the Episcopal Church, which was not the church that I was raised in, um, but the church that I had joined in college. I was raised in a church that didn't ordain women, so that wasn't really um, vocationally on the table for me. I tell people it was sort of like if I wanted to be a football player or something. It just wasn't, you know, it wasn't an option. Um, but then at HDS, it was, um, and it increasingly um, called to me uh, and, and being around people who were pursuing that. And in retrospect, I think that was partly, um, you know, if I would really wanted to be a teacher, I could have done that a lot of other places than Harvard Divinity School. But I think I just uh, landed where I needed to be. Um, so my, uh, but because I usually, in the ordination process, you, um, in the Episcopal Church, there's sort of a church side of the process that you do first, and then you go to seminary. And I did that out of order, as, as a lot of people, especially younger adults, um, tend to do. And so when I finished, uh, I switched to the MDiv program. Uh, when I graduated, I um, still had a few years before I was ordained. Uh, so I got a job at a church doing um, Christian formation for children and uh, really enjoyed that, enjoyed being in ministry. Um, I've always done creative writing, and I had some time to do that as well. And then about a year after that, um, I realized I still had 50 books checked out from Widener Library, um, which struck me as, as strange that, uh, and maybe that I wasn't really done with, um, 
with my academic work. And I had had a number of friends at HDS who, you know, came, like Emily, came for the two-year master's, were very focused their whole time on the on doctoral applications. And I knew, I knew exactly what that process was like. I knew the reality of the job market. Um, I knew uh, how tough it was to get tenure. We had, by that time, we had friends and all of that. And so, um, and I was also headed towards, uh, towards ordination. But I did have a few years left before that would happen. And I sort of thought, um, wow, may, you know, maybe I could do coursework before I was ordained and, and do this. You know, maybe the opportunity right now is to, is to do a doctorate. And I knew that um, my husband and I wanted to have children. And I knew that, you know, further down the road, um, a doctorate might be way less possible than it was uh, when I was in my 20s before we had children and while I was in a little bit of uh, limbo um, waiting to be uh, ordained. And uh, fortunately, um, I, yeah, it's, I, I didn't intend to apply to the doctorate. I applied to like two schools that are both in Boston. Um, I was accepted at at BU um, with a wonderful advisor, Peter Hawkins, who is now back at Yale Divinity School, but for eight years he was at BU. Um, it was a good fit for me because um, looking around at different doctoral programs, the, the uh, priesthood piece did not make sense to a lot of, like, why, why are you looking at this? Why are you, does this mean you're not going to be all in with the doctorate? But Peter had been um, educating ordinands for, you know, 20 years before I studied with him. And he was always really supportive of the, of the priestly part of my vocation um, as well. So, uh, so those things have always been in tandem for me. And the outcome was always, um, uh, I loved, I've, I've loved teaching. Um, I love academic work, but I also really love parish ministry. And so there was always a, um, uh, a little bit of an internal division. And, and people were always asking me, you know, people always pick the most helpful question, like, how's your dissertation going, you know, or <laughs> how's, how are the interviews this year, you know, or whatever. They, people always, for me, that question was, you know, what are you going to do when you're, are you going to be in a parish? Or are you going to teach? And um, I didn't know. And at one point on a retreat, I was reading um, a book by uh, an author named Eugene Peterson, who's a pastor uh, whose work I admire a lot. And uh, it's called Under the Unpredictable Plant, and it's a book about Jonah, the book of Jonah. And uh, it's about him coming to terms with the writerly side of his pastoral vocation. And that, uh, that both those, he is a writer and he is a pastor, and those things do not need to be in tension. They are of a piece. And um, that had a really profound effect on me. I realized that I, I didn't need to be divided in myself because of my vocation, um, that I, I was called to writing, uh, which, which often for me includes scholarship, and I was called to pastoral ministry. Um, and so then when people would ask me, you know, are you going to do this or are you going to do that? I would say yes, you know, yes. And, um, and oddly enough, that is what I am doing. Um, my uh, dissertation writing coincided with the births of my children. And so if anyone else here is thinking of that, taking that on, there's a workshop on Monday called Dissertation Plus Baby, offered by me, not only, <laughs> not only for women, not only for straight couples, um, for anyone who finds themselves with primary responsibility for caring for a baby while writing your dissertation, it can be done. I will help you, um, or if you know someone. Uh, so that that was uh, 
for serious, <laughs> that part. Um, but I finished that uh, and um, got a full-time. I'd been part-time in the church and uh, while I was doing my doctoral work and also um, being with my kids when they were very young. And uh, I had one year full-time um, as an associate uh priest and then was called to the parish to Grace in Newton Corner where I am and I'm the um, the senior and only only <laughs> pastor there um, and although also my my very retired associate priest uh, who's a parishioner uh, John Townsend is 90 years old and he is here at the AAR he retired from Episcopal Divinity School and um, so you can still be at the AAR mm-hmm. in your 10th decade if you choose as John is um, so, uh, and I continued with scholarship after I graduated. I graduated in 2014. Um, I was in ministry, but I, I had projects I was still working on after the dissertation. My subject is still really important to me. Um, I kept going to conferences. Uh, I kept writing. Um, one of my secrets of getting writing done with very young children is external deadlines. So, you know, you send that conference proposal in if it's on a topic that you really want to write about, and then you're, you're forced to come up with something. Um, so I, I was very happy as an independent scholar. Um, you know, I live in Boston, in, the Bo- in Arlington, in the Boston area. There's a lot of opportunities for I have library access. Um, but again, sort of like Emily and like others have said, you know, if you, if you sort of keep up your network and you're in the right place and you're connected, um, when an opportunity arises, you are there for it. And for me, um, that was uh, a the position of denominational counselor at HDS, which is a, it's a part-time, very part-time position. Uh, they have sort of an, you know, an extra advisor for every different religious tradition at, uh, at Harvard, at the Divinity School. Um, and it, the Episcopal one opened up, and it is, uh, includes an opportunity for some adjunct teaching. So though I wasn't looking to be teaching again um, at that moment, um, it was a great opportunity to be working with students again, um, to be teaching, um, and I can be sort of a true adjunct in the sense that I, you know, I have um, I have full time work, and this is something that um, you know is really I'm not making my living off of this teaching, um, but there's been a lot of freedom uh, to do academic work not on a tenure track, uh, not you know being part time in the academy. Um, and all kinds of writing. I published a book of poetry last year um, through Paraclete Press, which is here, and uh, that was also really, really great. I'm not sure that I would have put as much time into that manuscript um, if I'd been pursuing uh, a tenure-track position. So for me, there's other kinds of writing that I really enjoy, apart from academic writing, uh, but I can do that too. So um, it's worked out that way, and... uh, and being part of parish ministry and working with seminarians has also been um, great. So, um, and so just to uh, throw in there, um, I'm not only your moderator today, but I'm also someone who's not in an academic career. I like to uh, introduce myself to people as a failed academic. Um, you know, let me fulfill your stereotypes. Um, but I actually. Um, like Robbie, I had an advisor in undergrad who said, yeah, if you're going to go to graduate school, you should just do it to go to graduate school, not because you think there's a job at the end of it. Um, so I entered graduate school not really knowing what I was going to do with that because, you know, I was 22 and why not decide to spend my 20s going into debt and reading lots of books? Um, 
And I worked as a staff person in my department for much of my graduate program um, under Peter Hawkins, Regina's advisor, who was wonderful and um, gave me scope in a job that was supposed to be making copies and answering phones to really shape programming, event programming, and see how there were ways in which I could do intellectual work and really contribute to education in ways that were not just teaching in a classroom. Um, I'm also a very social creature and researching uh, and being all by myself to you know read and write was not something I found very satisfying the further into it I got. Um, so by the time I was about halfway through my program, I had pretty much decided that, that the academic track was not what I wanted. And I went to AAR uh, in DC several years ago and realized after I got home that I had been to exactly one panel that had anything to do with my scholarly research. And that was only because my advisor was on it and it felt like the politic thing to do to show up. Everything else I had done was panels where it was people doing other stuff, filmmakers, journalists, publishing. I hadn't thought about it, but that was where I ended up. And I walked into my boss's office, Peter Hawkins' office, and said, I need to give myself permission to do something else when I'm done here. And he closed the office door and looked at me and said, I think that's wonderful. Don't tell your advisor. And the next time my advisor was in the building, he was the chair of the department, I marched into his office and I said, I need to give myself permission to do something else when I'm done here. And I'm very lucky my advisor, Steve Prothero, kind of cocked his head to the side and said, okay. Um, he didn't know what to do with that in terms of helping me figure out what I was going to do, but he was open to it, which was really great. And I know that that's something that we don't all have, and I didn't get supported by all of the other faculty around me. Um, there were people who were definitely very unimpressed with this decision. But um, I, I definitely want to throw out there that um, on this panel, I'm, I'm definitely the person who made the choice. Like, this is not what I want. And I think that was very much shaped by being a staff person in my department and seeing the political back end. Um, I was on the back end of tenure cases. Um, I was on the back end of hiring decisions. And um, that you know, I had the scales taken from my eyes very early that the ivory tower was not what I think we all enter graduate school thinking that it is. So one of the things I definitely hope we can do by keeping this conversation moving is acknowledge that some of us go to grad school and maybe we enter not planning on going into teaching and some of us go to grad school and get part of the way through and think, yeah, this is just not the thing that I want and that's okay. I mean, it's not just about the job market and um, making decisions around life situations and life's twists and turns does not make us less dedicated as scholars. It makes us people. Um, so I, I think that you're right, Robbie, that it's really important that we talk about, you know, life's twists and turns take you different places. Um, so with that, let's start with... Um, a lot, of, a lot of you seem to have gone through this process as a sort of very happenstance kind of experience. It was like, oh, well, this thing has happened that has thrown a wrench in all of my plans. What do I do now? Um, what resources, if any, did you find were available for you when you found yourself in a position where, oh, that straight and narrow path isn't working. I have to do something different here. Were there resources available? 
did you find that you had support from the faculty and administration around you? I guess we'll just go in order again. Um, so since I wasn't living on my academic campus anymore, I um, didn't make use of the career services that may have been available to me, um, but I did make use of the internet. I spent a lot of time trolling the website Versatile PhD, which is a forum for people trying to put their PhDs to use in other ways. Um, some institutions have institutional membership where you can get even more resources from it, but <coughs> I couldn't access those and or my institution was not subscribed, I forget which. Um, and I did a lot of Googling for you know how to translate your CV into a resume and this that kind of thing. So I, I feel like I was sort of cobbling it together as I went. Um, I also read sort of, you know, books like What Color Is Your Parachute and other things like that. Um, just to kind of try to think outside the box a little bit. But in terms of concrete resources at school, I did not yeah, make much use of those. And I don't know, I don't know how helpful they would have been either. So that's an open question. Yeah, I don't think I had much uh, directly from the program, I, but I think what I ended up doing at every sort of disjuncture was um, this process of just trying to take in inventory, like of like, okay, what do I have? Like, what do I know? What am I good at? What, what can I use? Um, you know, to try to make sense of the current uh, moment. Um, so, like one random thing that I hadn't counted on being that useful is. Um, uh, my spouse, when I was in graduate school, uh, wanted to st was involved in starting a nonprofit in Atlanta, and I just was like being helpful and thought, okay, you know, I've got a little bit of flexible schedule. I'll sit on the board, I, and it was a startup board, and I tried to help, like get it off the ground. Ended up like kind of being the treasurer and keeping up with that stuff, and like that turned out to be a really useful skill. Um, but I did, I wasn't doing it at the time thinking it was going to help me at all. I was just kind of trying to be helpful to this nonprofit getting off the ground. But what I learned from going to grant writing workshops and nonprofit management workshops at the like uh, foundation center in Atlanta, uh, just to kind of help me like do this volunteer thing, um, turned out to be really useful um, later on when I was having to start like my own organization. Uh, you know, when, especially when I found out, uh, for example, that it was probably true I could get a seed money grant uh, from Nathan Cummings, but I had to have a 501c3 organization in order to receive it. Uh, and then trying to figure out, okay, well, I'm going to have to figure that out then uh, in order to make this kind of work. Uh, so just thinking about how to set up that sort of thing was helpful. Uh, and then just using, um, not being bashful about using networks, like I family networks. Um, actually, the thing that was helpful to get me from uh, the, the kind of line from uh, Missouri State to DC was actually my, um, I mean, this is the way it works, right? My, uh, my wife's, so my, my father-in-law's uh, college roommate at Brandeis turned out to be uh, connected to, uh, used to work in the Clinton administration and still had connections in the DC think tank world, right? So that's kind of what ended up, and he said, sure, I'll fax your resume around uh, to a few places that I still have connections to, and that's actually what got me in in the door um, but it's just kind of like you know trying to figure out where I could find those uh, those little things and um, you know the guy who ended up being our research director 
uh, who was at Pew, was originally my intern uh, at the first think tank I worked at uh, before uh, I became unemployed. Um, and so just trying to hang on to the connections that I had also and track, uh, track people. So I think it was just, it has felt very uh, okay at each point, like what do I know, what do I have, and then figuring out um, my, my PhD program, for example, was all qualitative analysis, right? I did interviews, ethnographies, like that sort of thing. Um, but in DC, nobody cared about that. Everybody cares about polls, uh, right? So quantitative uh, data analysis. And I remembered that I had an undergraduate <laughs> degree in math, right? But I hadn't used it in like 12 years. Um, so uh, just kind of dusting that back off and then like, you know, kind of faking it a little bit, um, to be frank. Uh, you know, uh, public opinion polling, sure, I could do that. Um, and uh, then figuring out uh, kind of building it as I as I went, um, but I, it has felt like that. But I think the important thing was are the lessons. Maybe just trying to figure out at each point. Okay, what do I have? Like, what can I put my hands on that I can use? What resources do I have? And just not feeling that bad about asking, like you know, imposing on people uh, to kind of help. So. Yeah, mine's pretty similar. Uh, I'm not afraid to ask people questions whether that's my, my advisor or I'll just send someone an email and said, hey, you have this. Uh, I think I can do that. What do you have for me? So uh, part of that's just keeping your my head up and seeing what what opportunities are out there too. Uh, you just, like you have to like look out for other things that you might fit somehow and then see, well, can I do that and do my program at the same time? Uh, it helps that we have a long summer break at McGill, like six months off. So uh, there's time to go out there and find and make connections in, in the city. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's a phrase my granddad said all the time. It's, about, it's not about what you know, it's about who you know. Uh, but my advisor always reminds me, well, you have to know the right stuff too. So <laughs> it's a combination of that. Um, knowing people and then knowing the right stuff with those people. Uh, now, one thing that I do a little differently than a lot of my peers do is I actually read the university emails that we get. Um, McGill's a huge place. Uh, BU was a huge place too, like 40,000 students uh, or 30,000 maybe at McGill. So with, with my little neck of the woods in religious studies, we may not be doing much about jobs or about uh, new skills or other things, but somebody on my campus is going to be doing that. And so if I can connect with those um, and help and find other people who are asking similar questions, maybe not about my field, but about a skill, uh, then I, I can take leverage of those. And I'm, I'm always surprised that I ask my colleagues, did you see this opportunity? No, what's that? So there's a lot of like um, just obliviousness to the resources the universities have, uh, much less like even asking, well, what should the university be doing better even than that? So, yeah, so to sum it up, this is asking people blunt questions and keeping your head up and looking for opportunities. Um, I guess for me, I've always just sort of, I guess it sounds a little cliche, I've always sort of done what I loved. I mean, I wasn't really tied to, um, I think with the doctorate, if, if you're tied if the outcome that you're longing for is the is the slot, you know, the tenure track slot, I think you're very likely to be disappointed. But if you have a clear sense of what it is that you love and love doing, um, and you know, one example of this, even if with, even with my little um, 
as my friend calls it, my side hustle at Harvard Divinity School. Um, you know, I've always done a lot of mentoring um, because both the ordination process and the doctoral, you know, the dissertation, PhD process are these long, uh, multi-step things that, that are very difficult to navigate, and they're especially difficult for women to navigate in, in two male-dominated uh, fields, ministry and, um, and uh, you know, religious studies. And um, so I always took a lot of time with students, especially with women, either uh, people discerning ministry or people looking at doctoral programs, um, and, and just doing a lot of mentoring. And my advisor sent me a lot of his students at Yale. Other people would say, oh, you know, Regina's a, an Episcopal priest. You should call her. Um, at BU, I found especially some of the international students weren't as well supported uh, in the school of theology as they, as they should have been. And um, one of whom was a clergy colleague of mine um, uh, from Africa and just was really um, having some issues with her advisor that were going to be very costly for her. Um, so it was things like that, uh, just a lot of mentoring. Um, and then, you know, with when that came up with HDS, it was like, well, do you want a job where you mentor students? And I was like, yes, <laughs> you know, because this is sort of what I do. Um, this is just what I love doing anyway. This is vocational discernment is something I really love helping others with. So, um, so I mean, to think sort of bigger about not the, the end result in being a, a job, but, you know, what are the, what are the practices and the skills and the disciplines um, that are really drawing you to this and, uh, and just continuing to do them. Um, and, and the network is really important, um, not always in a, in a mercenary way, but just in a, in a mutual way of, of sharing, you know, what you have to offer with others and then um, and others doing that with you as well. Um, yeah. So picking up on the mentoring and on a conversation we had this morning in the uh, Applied Religious Studies Working Group business meeting, um, one of the things that we want to do is sort of make a move now beyond making this conversation okay and actually talk about what can you learn from the experiences of people who have gone before on this path. Um, and I think one way that we can frame that is if you, like me, are the person that your friends who are thinking of leaving the academy come to, what advice do you give them based on your own experience? What sort of concrete advice have you pulled from your own experience? Because, you know, we all sort of stumble through it, right? We didn't have a lot of guidance. Advisors didn't know what to do. Would career services have even been helpful or known what to do with a humanities student? Um, I have a friend who actually did try to use the Office of Career Services at BU, and um, they didn't know what a CV was, <laughs> the person that she was scheduled to meet with. So, um, but what do you do now when people come to you and say, I'm thinking, you know, I've been in this graduate program and I thought I was going to go into the academy and now I'm thinking maybe I want to look at other options. What do I do? What do you say to those folks? Um, well, at the risk of being self-promotional, my, my advice, I actually wrote about it for the Chronicle Vitae column in, in a t piece that they retitled as Alt-Ac or Bust. That was not the title I chose. Um, but if you Google Alt-Ac or Bust Chronicle Vitae, it'll come up. A couple of the points that I highlighted in there are the things that, that I would tell people in answer to this question. Um, 
And some of them are what I mentioned earlier about staying open to seemingly random opportunities. I phrased that this morning as saying yes to things and then got told that no, I shouldn't phrase it as saying yes because women do too much saying yes. So I changed it to thinking, uh, staying open to seemingly random opportunities. Um, and also the, the twists and turns of choices that we make. Um, I think I didn't know at the time that some of the choices I made were going to have a effect on, on where my career trajectory went. So being aware that some things that seem unrelated can eventually play into that. Um, decisions about where to live, who to marry, when to have children, that sort of thing can all be more important for one's trajectory than they may seem at the outset. Um, and something I haven't mentioned yet, I don't think, is that I've been sort of evolving into is having my identity be less tied up in the idea that I brought with me to graduate school. I think I had, um, I was very much focused on this idea of being a scholar, um, but it's been helpful to think of identity in more multifaceted ways, being a mother, a spouse, being a scholar, being a writer, um, being a religious, um, a professional in the academy, not necessarily focused on, on what I thought I would be. So kind of thinking more broadly about who I am and what I'm doing is also helpful. Yeah, I'm always loathe to give advice because I, I was trying to think about it. I'm not sure what advice would have helped me um, along the way. But um, the, the only things I, I thought about is uh, repackaging myself was something I had to do a lot of along the way. And so, you know, my PhD is in ethics and society, and um, that's kind of hard to, you know, translate, I think, directly. But, um, you know, most of my, most of when I was doing the contract work, most of it was because I could write. That's, that's really what it turned out. And I could say that I could write about technical things in a non-jargony way uh, so that people could understand it. So I ended up basically writing about policy um, that had, like, all these kind of crazy nuances and was down the weeds. Um, but translating that to something that, you know, the communications department at a advocacy group could understand or a think tank could put out to journalists and they wouldn't kind of eyes wouldn't glaze over. Um, so I think repackaging sort of my skill set to be something that was useful. And I think r like really good writers are still, uh, you know, at least in the world I'm circulating in the DC think tank world is really a valuable skill to be able to, you know, really translate something for a lay, a lay audience. And I think, I know that's not always what we academics uh, are trained to do, but at the end of the day, if you can get that skill down, um, uh, being you know, if you can confidently say I can make an argument in 800 words, um, that's often like really useful as well. Um, that's something I kind of had to train myself to do, right? Normally we can't like cough in 800 words, um, but nor but trying to figure out how to. And I think what I ended up having to do is like write the thing I wanted to write, and then like find. So for me, somewhere in the middle, maybe two-thirds down, was the 800 words uh, that I really was going to use, and I would just throw the rest away, but trying to figure out how to do that well, um, getting rid of all the prolegomena, all the sort of lit review, all that stuff, and just like jumping to the point, uh, thinking like a journalist, I think was another kind of way of, of doing it. Um, and then I think just any sort of um, skill in the like that, that's sellable. So um, if any of you have old, like, yeah, for me, I mean, dusting off old quantitative skill set was actually a key a key thing. And it was not something I really initially would have thought 
uh, to do. I kind of thought of my math major as something I left behind when I went to seminary, but having a railing, I had to kind of pull that back up uh, as something I could essentially sell, as, as, um, as I could understand numbers, I could understand statistics, I wasn't going to get lost, um, you know, in, in anything heavily technical uh, like that. But I, but I think communicate, being able to communicate ideas and, and well and, and clearly, I think, is something that, you know, hopefully PhD programs train, train people to do. I don't really have any answers yet, so I don't do a lot of mentoring. Uh, but what I do do is a lot of just thinking with my other grad students, uh, those ones that I'm always surprised that haven't looked at any of the university resources. I sort of mention, hey, have you thought about this? Uh, so I get to help other people find things that will help them at the university level, because I stay in touch with that. So I act as a bridge between my department and the rest of the university, which is a nice thing to do. Um, but also, um, my cohort and I are going through our comps right now. So we've been doing a lot of thinking about what kind of scholars we want to be, uh, thinking about, well, what do I want my minor competency to be on? What will I be able to teach? What does this even mean? Like, even figuring out what does it mean to have a competency in something. There's not a lot written about that, and you can go ask your advisor, and they'll tell you something, but you're like, what does that mean on the ground? So we do a lot of puzzling together. And uh, I'll bring these questions about, well, can you teach that? Can you be hired for that? Like, what are you going to do after this degree? So the same questions I ask myself all the time, I try to puzzle through with my fellow students uh, as we sort of tumble our way through this PhD thing. I, guess I don't really get a lot of. Uh, people who are already in the doctoral program asking me about. But what I do get, because I work with graduate students now, and, and especially graduate students who are um, often using their master's degree to sort of figure out what's next, uh, I have a lot of conversations about um, the, you know, entering a doctoral program, um, especially because I teach religion and literature. There's not a lot of jobs in religion and literature. Um, and, uh, HDS is uh, really strong in religion and lit, but a lot of students are trying to figure out what to do next. And um, you know, there's a story with the with the Benedictines that you know, if someone wanted to become a Benedictine monk, they had to you know, they'd knock on the door, and they would be turned away three times you know, before they let them. You know, it was really like, do you really want to be a Benedictine? You know, and you had to you had to uh, be willing to be turned away three times before. So I, you know, I think for some people, the doctorate really is the right path, and it was for me. I mean, I think for me, it's been about writing, uh, and my writing was transformed through the doctoral program. I mean, when I read what I, the writer I was at the beginning and the end, I mean, it's night and day. Um, for some people, it's really the right choice, but I feel like my responsibility is to make sure that um, people know what they're getting into. I did know what I was getting into. It was the right choice for me, but um, to really make sure that uh, master's students have that understanding. So, um, and if they do, then that's great, you know? Um, but but not, no one should be blindsided by the reality of the job market in, in right now. Um, following on what Robbie said about repackaging, um, I like to use the term translating. I think that's something that is helpful to people um, we have to translate our skill set into a language that people outside the academy understand. 
we're taught to speak in academic jargon. Um, I only recently went back and watched the first few episodes of Cheers because I'm super in love with The Good Place on NBC right now, and I ran out of episodes, and I was like, okay, well, I'll go watch some more Ted Danson somewhere. In the first episode, and we're in Boston, so this is especially fitting, first episode, which I had never seen, um, Shelley Long walks into the bar where she's meeting her fiancé, who's her professor. She's his TA in the English department at BU. <laughs> and he meets her, but then needs to go meet with his ex-wife for something and ends up hopping the flight that he and Shelley Long were supposed to be on with his ex-wife. So he dumps her at the bar. Um, so you've already got this wonderful like encapsulation of a lot of the problems of the power dynamics between graduate students and mentors and also women in the academy. But then um, Sam, Ted Danson, offers her a job as a waitress at the bar. And she's like, why would I work here? And he says, you've got a degree in English. What else do you think you're going to do? <laughs> and I was like, how did I go this long in my life not knowing that Cheers started where I am now? Which is, you know, the message is, you know, how many of you have had family members say, what are you going to do with that? Or what do you hear from people who major in religion? Would you like fries with that? And yes, my husband worked as a barista for a while after his master's degree in religion, so that's a thing. But we are told that we don't have marketable skills, right? We are told we are only being outfitted to work in the academy. And it's not true. It's just that we need to learn how to translate the skills that we have into the language that people in other fields will understand. Um, I routinely recommend that people you know, pick a job site in a field that they think they're interested in exploring and just go look at how the jobs are written up. Look at the language that is used. You're going to recognize the skills that you have. They're just using different terms to describe them. And once you learn those terms and can translate your skill sets and your experiences into the language that's being used outside the academy, you know, there's your repackaging. And then as far as do we know how to write well? Maybe in our research we're not very good at being short and pithy, but how many of us have had to teach freshman classes where there's a writing component? At BU, they routinely run humanities students through the, the freshman writing program. A lot of us teach over there. You have to teach students how to write a clear and concise argument. We know how to do that, right? So these are skills that we already have. We just have to sort of repackage or translate them into the space that we're looking to move into. Um, and the other thing that, that struck me that you said, Robbie, and you've said this a couple times now, is valuing all of your experience. You know, going back to that math degree. You know, going back to, Emily, you said you've ended up where you are because your dissertation kind of covered the time period that this project was doing, not because you were a scholar on Chicago's history, but you had experience with that time period that came into play. Um, Regina, you have a history in religious education, and now you're mentoring people. Mm -hmm. You know, all of our experiences come back. I still have the Disney store on my LinkedIn page. Thank you very much. <laughs> because you know what? I can serve customers, and that's a saleable skill, right? Um, so I think just thinking more broadly about all of our experiences and not limiting ourselves not only to academic language, but also to the academic values that are imposed. You would never put the Disney store on your CV. Right, but 
those experiences are valued differently when you are outside the academic path um, or the traditional faculty path. I just want to say too, like, I think sometimes people think if you're not uh, working as a professor, that that's it for your scholarship. And I just want to put out a plug for the joy of being an independent scholar, <laughs> which, um, which now I have an affiliation again, but I didn't for several years. Um, you know, the work was still engaging to me, and you have to make time for do, to do it in the same way that, honestly, the professors on the tenure track, I mean, no one says, oh, I just have ample time to do my research projects, you know, but I could really do whatever I wanted. I mean, I, and I have been. No one, there was no pressure for tenure. There was no, well, this would be a better project than this because you have to be strategic with, um, I mean, I really could do it for the joy of doing it and as much of it as I wanted to do. And, um, and I, and it's been, I haven't had trouble having it published. So for me, um, it, it's been a really wonderful thing. That was the thing that was maybe gave me the most anxiety was that you know I wouldn't be writing, I wouldn't be pursuing these questions that were important to me, but I have all the skills to pursue them, and and um, I figured out a way, more or less, and a set of strategies to make time to do it, and um, it's great to uh, you know, and I'm and I'm in a profession that is sympathetic to scholarship, which some are more than others, but but um, you know there's a history of the learned ministry and. Um, so I don't know. I just want to put out a, a pitch for that. That if it's if the fear is you won't be able to do this work, maybe rethink um, how you might be able to continue it, and it, it might be more possible um, than you think. That's a nice segue into a question of where do you see the skills and knowledge that you gained in your graduate studies coming into play in the work that you're doing now. Do you want to start at the other end? Oh, well, I use, I mean, you know, it's sort of, I have an MDiv and I'm a priest, so, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm really, like, using my degree every day, so that's, you know, that's... Well, you're also uh, a religion and literature scholar, and you preach some pretty great sermons, Regina, I can you. say, from experience, so um, you're Well, you're no, very... it, it does, it, it comes into play a lot. I guess the thing I didn't expect was that my doctorate in 17th century English devotional poetry would affect um, the way I thought about certain questions in the church today. Um, I'm very interested in what's called Christian formation, which is how a sort of the faith is passed on um, to the next generation. And um, oddly enough, my, my doctoral work uh, has informed some, some of my thinking on and writing on some contemporary stuff. Uh, so there is, you know, nothing is wasted and there's a lot of cross-fertilization. Um, but, uh, you know, but, but also for me, um, you know, I'm still... Uh, you know, I'm still very much working in that field. Well, since I'm still in grad school, I'm figuring this out. Uh, but I suppose I can talk about the way I've used my humanities PhD to, pr like, do my summer jobs. So the last summer, I was the program manager for the junior sailing uh, program at the Royal St. Lawrence Yacht Club in Montreal. Uh, I sort of, I came in, like, last minute, and they said, I applied to be an instructor, and they said, do you want to run it? Okay. And uh, from there, I, I was given like three forms that they'd had last year and kind of a schedule and said, go. And so you sort of had to like start from scratch. Uh, the, the, an image to think about, you have um, a robot walking along 
and you're not given any diagrams, but you have to rewire the inside while it's still moving without it breaking down, uh, which kind of feels like a PhD at the same time. When you're asked to like, hey, uh, what do you do your comps on? Uh, I don't know. Uh, what does that even mean? And so there's all of this figuring out that's going on. You have to take really complex problems and break it down into really manageable bits and then communicate those manageable bits either to your boss if you have a problem or to, to the people you're supervising. Um, and then, yeah, so it's I think, complex problem solving uh, in a really dynamic environment as you're going and juggling lots of things. It's exactly what we do in PhDs. So, yeah. Um, well, I think I'm fortunate in some ways that it, I, I don't feel like I've moved that far, you know, like so, um, like one good example is, you know, so most of what we do is public opinion polling, so uh, I can kind of, I feel like that's kind of in trajectory of the math stuff, but I think I'm the only, it's, it's so weird to me that like in D.C. I get called a pollster, definitely not a title I would ever have thought uh, I was going to own, um, but that's what they call people who do social science inside of DC. Um, and uh, so, uh, so, but, but I'm also, I think, I think I'm the only pollster I know of that has an, either an MDiv or a PhD in religion. Um, so that gives me a kind of insight. So when we're, when we're crafting a questionnaire, I've got a sort of theological ear that n not many other political science people have, right? So I can really ask questions that get to the heart of the matter or that no one would think to ask if they don't just kind of come through coming at it from the political science side or when you know i'm talking with a reporter and i'm giving them some number on kind of evangelicals and what they think about politicians moral character uh and then they say did you hear this weird quote about you know uh the state auditor in alabama said something about uh, roy moore and J joseph and mary and like what, what's going on with that and I actually can talk about literal uh, or kind of literal interpretation of the Bible and what that would mean in that context while I'm giving them a statistical you know, perspective on the same thing. So that actually, I think, has been um, hugely valuable uh, to me that I can actually talk about both things at the same time. And I, I think that actually has been helpful for reporters coming to us um, because I think they feel like they're going to get not just a number, but like what the number means in a more uh, kind of cultural or religious uh, context. So I, I actually feel like I'm using most of kind of what most of my training, I'm just not teaching. That's the main thing I'm not doing. Yeah, um, yeah so I work at a college. So I, again, you know, on the face of it, what I'm doing is very directly related. And, um, you know, the, I, did, I did write a little bit about Chicago in my dissertation. And so there is that sort of content-based um, connection. Also then, so I, I work with faculty on specific research projects, and so I can really help them think through their research, both in terms of um, the, the, the intellectual content of it, but then I, I also help them think through it in terms of how are they going to have a digital deliverable about it. And that's more, and so that's actually, I want to turn the question around and say working on the more um, administrative side of academia has taught me that some of this language that I didn't know any of, so things like deliverable and MOU. Anybody know what that stands for? I do. Yeah, you do, yes. <laughs> Memo of Understanding and ROI, Return on Investment. And so there's this whole other lingo that I have sort of picked up from, from being on the other side of things that I, I never thought I would get a glimpse into, and, and that's been, um, you know, interesting and challenging, I think. 
Do we have time for questions from yeah. folks? Oh, yeah, we've got plenty of time. Um, so I think we're scheduled, Robert, am I wrong, until 6.30? Yeah, so we've got plenty of time. I mean, the last thing I was just going to say is, um, you know, what do you wish you had, Jason, or ha had had um, as you were going through the process of making this transition? So we've talked about, I mean, it, it really sounds like there wasn't a whole lot of institutional support for those of us who've already made this transition. Um, what were you looking for? What do you wish you had had? And sort of stacked onto that, did you feel like you could talk to your fellow faculty? Uh, or to your faculty advisors, and Robbie, for you, to your fellow faculty about you know planning to make the leap? Um, mm -hmm. Was this something that you could talk openly about? Um, we had one student leave my PhD program to, to go to law school, and the, the impression I got was that that was sort of tolerated, so, so maybe it would have been something we could talk about, but no one sort of did. Um, and in terms of what do I wish that I had had, you know, it's funny, I was thinking about this, that this morning at our meeting, and to, to my view, so much of PhD programs is about training other future professors. Um, so it's, it's hard to think about how my program would have been different if there had been some kind of component of helping students think through the other possible outcomes. Um, so I think that's one reason why conversations like this are so, so helpful, just try to bring in these other outcomes as part of the conversation about what goes on in graduate school. Um, I guess I just would, a, a better map, I guess, of what else was kind of in that next, like if you know academia is this bubble, what's in the next concentric circle out that's connected and not just way out in left field, I spent all this time, you know, I'd like to have something that's kind of connected. And there is that whole, there is a whole set of um, think tanks, nonprofit policy shops, like all kinds of uh, really 501c3 organizations that are in that uh, kind of next circle out, I think, particularly in my area. Uh, it might not be the same for everybody's field, but in my field, because it was religion and politics, there was this whole set of things. I hadn't really thought about that much, really, until I had to think about it, um, that I wish I'd been proactively thinking about a little bit more and, and kind of thinking about, okay, how do these things connect up so that it wouldn't have been, a, I can't get dead lift. Uh, when, when necessity struck, it was like a start from ground zero um, kind of a thing instead of something that was already in, in play for me. I'd just like to hop in on that and point out last year, um, Sean Landris said something that I thought was really great, which is, you know, professors often think, well, I don't know what to do for you uh, when your students, you know, when students start saying, you know, I want to consider other options and professors are like, I have no idea what else you would do. But um, Sean pointed out that, you know, we all exist in our own ecosystems, right? And faculty don't just talk to other faculty. Faculty write applications for grants, faculty deal with foundations, faculty deal with publishers, faculty edit journals, faculty do, you know, many of them have done administrative work in various uh, reaches of their own institutions. Um, many of them have media contacts. And so um, he suggested that when you know you've got faculty who will be supportive and they just sort of don't know how, start asking them about their connections in different spaces that come to them naturally through their work. And that already gets you into that sort of next layer. Um, because in many times it's not that faculty 
won't help or don't want to, but they sort of can't mm-hmm. imagine what they would do. And I just thought that was a really great point that Sean made that like, you know, we all exist in these ecosystems and it's, you know, very much about networking as we've mm-hmm. all said, you know, we all sort of knew somebody who knew somebody kind of thing. Um, so go to those friendly faculty who are willing to have these conversations and say, you know, I've been thinking I might be interested in, you know, trying to intern at a publisher. You know, could you connect me to the editors of your last couple of books? Or I know you edited such and such journal. Do you think they take interns? Or, you know, and this this gets to the point of just ask questions. You know, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? Somebody's going to say no. Again, you know, this is, you you tread carefully in this space. You know, there are definitely, I, I had the experience of faculty who were not supportive. Um, but I think we all kind of know who the people around us are who are willing to have these conversations and grad students, you know, know and, and share amongst themselves who you can talk to about these things and who you can't. Um, you know, go to those people and if they're willing to help, you can help them help you in that way. Yeah, being the American at uh, McGill, I feel often like the very brash one for asking questions. Like, oh, am I just living up to all the American stereotypes here? Sorry. <laughs> so, yeah, you just have to do that. Um, so can I brag about McGill for a second, too? Absolutely. Yeah, yay. So uh, McGill is actually asking all of these questions uh, on a really important level at the university. Like, our, uh, the graduate dean uh, for uh, graduate students and postdoctoral students um, is leading a huge charge in this area about asking, how do we connect PhDs and the job market? Because only 20, like 18% of our PhDs are going to get jobs in tenure-track positions. So they're seeing that problem there, and they're asking two big questions. One, what does the university need to do to better equip their PhDs for the job market? And two, what does, the, what does the university need to do to get employers to recognize the value of PhDs? Now, these are really huge questions that are going to take really systemic, fundamentally rethinking the PhD program questions. And so when the rubber hits the road there, that's when there are some problems. But before I talk about the problems with McGill's approach, I want to say they're asking the right questions, and they're doing some really interesting answers and responses to those questions. Uh, one thing is our, uh, the dean's office has all of these extra, um, extracurricular opportunities for you. And they're, they're, there's three different main ones. There's one called skill sets, one called caps, and one called graphos. Uh, skill sets is exactly what it sounds like. It, you're, you're teaching skills particular things. This could be like they teach you how to use like a bibliographic management software. Uh, one I'm doing this semester is basic business skills. So we go uh, once a week and we hear from people who in the, in the business faculty or local businesses and they teach us about like case cracking. Like where you go and you have an entrepreneur problem and you act as if you're a consultant and you do that. So there's that through skill sets. Um, CAPS is our career services group, uh, career planning, and they're really active and they have good people there to help you with all the normal stuff that career planning does. And then Graphos is writing. So they'll uh, do uh, all sorts of writing projects, classes to improve your writing, uh, grant writing, all sorts of things. And so that's a really like kind of top-down, extracurricular approach that you have to do on top of all the work you're doing for a PhD anyway. So you have to, one, have to read the university emails and then schedule time to go do these things. 
Um, fortunately, my advisor says, hey, these are good things. Have you heard of this? And I say, oh, that's awesome. And then I go out and tell my other peers, have you guys heard of these things? No. And then there's some crickets chirping somewhere. So being aware of those is really important. Uh, but your advisor has to be into it, too. And so many of the advisors don't even talk about this. And the faculties don't talk about this. So like, that's all from the dean's office, nothing within the faculty of arts or in religious studies. Those conversations aren't happening unless you're f seeking them out. Uh, so there's a disconnect there between what the university wants to do and then what it actually is doing with the, with the, the faculty. But then you ask faculty, do you want your students to get jobs? Yeah, we want to help them find jobs that are good for them. Uh, but they don't really don't know how. And then there's that whole question of, well, do we rethink the PhD structure? What does that look like? And no one wants to crack that hornet's nest. Like, do you, you know, and there's all sorts of weird things you go through there. But McGill's trying to help us think about ways to translate our skills into jobs. And so we'll see. One really cool way they're doing that is um, they're doing an individual development plan, or IDP. Um, it's a thing that the National Institute of Health requires for any postdocs in the US. Um, and it's being implemented throughout Canada also. And so and it's not going to be just for the sciences. It's going to be for the humanities. And basically, what it, it's a self-reflective tool where you uh, set goals, and then you do objectives um, to meet those goals. And then there's a reflective portion. Uh, you might have heard of the Imagine PhD program uh, that the AAR sent out an email about like a couple weeks ago. Again, reading those emails. Um, it's very a lot, I, I just want to say that sounds a lot like your inventory, Robbie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it, it basically is. Um, and so there's a lot of research saying that if, if grad students or just people in general take time to be really reflective and set goals and then reflect on them later about their goals, they're going to be much more successful. So this is a way to, independent of your typical like progress tracking report of, did you finish your coursework? Did you, uh, you know, apply for funding? That kind of stuff. This is like a whole personal set, and it's a really cool website McGill is developing for that. So we're doing some cool stuff. But again, we'll see what happens when the rubber hits the road. Will students do it? Will they care? Will advisors push it, and will they care? Um, or will it just be another paperwork thing you have to do to get through everything? So we'll see. Yeah, I would just say, you know, you need to find really good mentors. And if they're not your advisor, you should seek them out. I feel that that's, you know, for me, that made a big difference. In fact, my um, one of my mentors from Harvard then was uh, the chair of the religion department at McGill. Um, she passed away a few years ago, Ellen Aiken. Um, but she was a very generous mentor to many, many students, um, it, you know, undergrads, graduates, uh, beyond. Um, so, you know, really find the people uh, who are going to support you and who know the things that um, you're going to need to know. I had a fabulous advisor. Um, he got a job, you know, when in the 70s. You know, he finished his English degree at Yale and got a job at Yale Divinity School. I mean, obviously, I was not going to go to him <laughs> for advice on the job market. You know, uh, it was I needed to find other people to do that. So, um, uh, but I think, and honestly, that's true in any profession. I mean, you ha you have to seek out um, the help that is is 
going to be really helpful for you and not, you know, not just be disappointed that the people closest to you don't have what you need. And I would just add to that that I think mentoring doesn't have to only be one kind of thing. So I would I, I routinely tell Peter that Regina's advisor, Peter Hawkins, was my mentor who got me through grad school. And Peter didn't help me get a job, but Peter helped me develop and value skills that I was not being encouraged to develop and value in other spaces. So mentorship doesn't necessarily just mean the person who's going to help you, you know, search the job boards or know what to look for, but also that they're going to help you develop and value skills that are, again, outside of what we tend to value in graduate studies as leading to that traditional sort of faculty position. Um, so with that, I think we should open it up to the floor. Um, I know that we've been going for a while now, but I want folks to have a chance to ask questions. We are recording this for podcast, um, so I'm going to ask you to speak into the microphone. I'll bring it around. So if anybody has any questions or comments or... <laughs> This is on. Oh. So uh, I want to thank you all for this talk. Uh, this has really resonated with me as a graduate student at Temple University of Philadelphia. Uh, I'm in my fifth year, and I probably had maybe three or four oh crap moments knowing that given experience as a grad student instructor with how tenuous that is, uh, experience on uh, committees, seeing the really nasty politics involved, and just reading all the statistics of <clears throat> troubling elements. On top of the fact I've changed my area of research three, four times. My area of research now, religion and sports, gets very tepid responses from people who are not on my committee, I have maybe two or three people. Everyone else in my department doesn't really care. But my question is, uh, you mentioned something about uh, translating. Uh, translating skills that you have as a PhD into more so the secular or the business vernacular. What kind of resources are there for learning that vocabulary, for changing that for changing the kinds of words and the skills that you have. So first I'm going to point out to you, if you don't know her already, Amy Defbaugh, who's sitting next to you. So she's a good resource for you. Um, she's at Temple. Um, do you guys have any response to that? I mean, what, what have you done in your own spaces to figure out how to talk to people who aren't in the academy? So I have one really specific uh, 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 suggestion, and that is to, um, if you don't know Tom Crottenmaker, um, you should, as uh, K, K-R-A-T-T-E-N-M-A-K-E-R. -E uh, so he writes in religion and sports, but he's a great example of someone who um, has made his way through basically administrative academic positions, um, but he has also managed to, uh, he writes fairly regularly at USA Today um, in this space. He has two books at least out on religion and sports, um, uh, one from Roman and Littlefield. I forget where the other one's from. Um, and he's now, I think he just moved to be the communications director at Yale Divinity uh, School, but he was out in Portland 
uh, you know, at another university before that. But but while he's kind of doing his day job as kind of a communications person in a in, in the university setting, he's managed to kind of keep. Um, I love this. I love the side hustle language. I mean, kind of a side hustle going uh, of really being able to. You know, I mean, in that space, like he's somebody people know. You know, even though he's never had a, a, a you know full time faculty position. Can you spell that? Yes, yeah, K-R-A-T-T-E-N-M-A-K-E-R. Um, he's also really personable. So, like, th this is, like, like networking. I would say, like, you know, send him an email. Say, look, I'm working in this space. Not that many people, like, who are really doing serious work um, in the space. And he'd be great, you know, somebody great to connect with. Yeah. yeah, so this is a question I ask a lot, of not just of myself, but of my advisor or of the university. Uh, so... I've been on the advisory board for this individual development plan thing McGill's been doing, and I'm a philosopher, so I don't know what words mean until I've really read a lot of books about those words. <laughs> and uh, so coming up with the with the you know the capitalist you know, um, words for is hard sometimes because there's this, this critical theory language we get they're like oh I don't like those words that's that's not good. So but at the same time. Um, so our IDP program, we ask this a lot. How are grad students going to know, like, oh, I do this. How does that translate to a job somehow? Or what are the skills jobs are looking for? And so one of the things we're going to do on our website is populate things. And we'll say, here are some suggested skills that might go along with this. Or let's say the university is going to offer um, a seminar on something through the skill sets thing. And they'll have tags in that that you can then populate to your profile through that. So we're using the language from uh, the career services people to help us translate through this IDP program to do that for us. So that's there uh, in that for us. Imagine PhD is another one that's coming out in the North American context. Um, AAR has been a part of that. So like those programs help you learn the language that things are looking for. And then you just have to go on LinkedIn and see what people put and just read a lot and get context clues. One of the websites that I looked at when I was um, starting to search for jobs was called beyondacademe.com, um, a blog by a former history PhD. And there were some specific things in there in terms of literally how you translate stuff you do in academia to the, the wider world. So teaching students becomes working with people. Um, I was just pulling it up here on my iPad um, as we were talking, but you know, comfort with public speaking, that, that, that's a skill that is marketable and usable. Um, management of details and coordinating tasks. Um, one thing that's very useful in the business world is providing feedback to groups and individuals, right? That, that's teaching, right? But it's also providing feedback to groups and individuals. So, so there are a lot of ways you can take things that are pretty ordinary in the academic world. It doesn't have to be a sort of highfalutin skill um, and just find the other language. And there are other websites out there too that do this and that take these normal skills in academia and translate them to other terms. I would also add, um, we've talked about the importance of networking. And uh, one thing that we're hoping to build out at AAR and that we're sort of still figuring out how to do is networks of scholars of religion who've gone into non-faculty career paths. Um, again, go back to faculty, <laughs> ask them where their students are now, ask them if they can connect you to those students, send people emails. 90% of the time, they're happy to help out. 
the rest, that other 10% are usually just going to ignore you. So it's really not that painful. But, you know, connecting back to people who have gone in different directions and find out how they talk about what they do and how they got where they are. Um, and then one thing I recommend to people is if you have some idea of the direction you might want to go in, um, go to job boards for those kinds of jobs and just look at how the jobs are described and look how the language is used because you're going to recognize things that you do already and see, oh, but they just describe it in this other way. So going out to LinkedIn and seeing what people are doing, go to LinkedIn and search for people who studied religion, you know, have education mm -hmm. in religion and see what they're doing now and how they describe themselves. Thank you all so much. This was um, extremely enlightening. Um, I think I have a very controversial question. Um, part of what I do in my job at Temple um, from the dean's office is provide graduate student professional development. And one of the questions that we've sort of been toying with um, is the shape of the dissertation and rethinking the dissertation um, and what that might mean in regards to getting students jobs. Um, so we brought a couple speakers in last year who are very much and were very much about changing the shape of the dissertation. And I was just wondering what your thoughts were on that. Um, you know, so rather doing a huge book length monograph dissertation, if the dissertation could perhaps be in, on a, in an alternative form and what you guys think about that. Honestly, I don't know that we need to change the shape of the dissertation. We need to fund people fully throughout the writing of their dissertation. I mean, that's really the, that was the issue for me. Uh, more and more departments are starting to accept fewer people and fund them better, which I think is the way to go. But I mean, like, Temple could make that change, and then those students would potentially go on the job market and not have a comparable product. I mean, in the humanities right now, it is a book length. You know, but I guess part of that would be so people could finish faster. They'll finish faster if they're not teaching for courses all over town. Um, you know, and I, and I guess that's the other thing I just want to acknowledge that, um, you know, I'm not a big lean-in fan because the system is broken. So we need to, you know, you need to be on your game and make connections and be aware. But, but it's not like... Uh, these are really large structural problems that we're up against. And it's not just that if you can sort of work a little harder or, or, or I mean, you could read all the emails. And I'm sure they're, you know, they're great. But, it's, but, but the system is broken. So I mean, I guess my response to that would be like, why not fund people so that they can write that dissertation? They can do a book length project faster. Um, and they're not um, struggling to pay their bills. They're not going to credit card debt. They're able to afford um, childcare, which was a big issue for me. Um, so I guess I guess that's my controversial answer. <laughs> I just want to tag one thing onto that. I mean, I, I I've said this before that like if you were to just like forget about academia as a as academia, and just treat it as any other sector of the corporate world, and you looked at the amount of talent that sector was allowing to walk out the door to another sector you would say that sector is dying, right? It just will not survive uh, with that kind of talent bleed. And yet that's exactly where academia has been for decades. Um, and, and, you know, so all the, you know, there's all kinds of talent walking out the door. I mean, any academic job, I, I only was on one job search uh, uh, committee 
and it was at Missouri State University. You know, it was kind of a middling university in a very small town in the middle of Missouri. Um, and we got like 135 job applications for a tenure track job. And honestly, you know, you could eliminate maybe half of them uh, for not kind of being exactly what we were looking for. But then we were left with like 60 people um, who were like really right on the money uh, for what we were looking for. And it's just, it, it just becomes a sort of nonsensical process after that, right? It's sort of random uh, who ends up at the top of the heap because uh, uh, everybody's qualified. Um, so, yeah, it just, that just strikes me as this kind of uh, real, I think, I just want to echo the dysfunction, right? That it, it's not that, uh, yeah, we're, we're trying to sort of, you know, work inside a system that's basically working. I mean, it, it's deeply, deeply broken. I think that's right. Why am I doing this again? <laughs> <laughs> so I would go back, Amy, to the language of translating. I mean, not necessarily changing the shape of the dissertation, but changing how we frame it. Um, you should be able to give an elevator pitch on why your dissertation matters, and not just within a literature review in your field, but also, you know, I talk to people about how my dissertation is on American religious history. It focused on intolerance. I'm very sensitive to issues of diversity. I'm also very sensitive to issues of representation, and that has actually come into play in the work I'm doing now at a Center for Health Law and Bioethics, because boy, do I see stigma all over the place around specific illnesses, identified disabilities, things like that. And I'm much more sensitive to that because of the dissertation work I did. So being able to elevator pitch it, not just within the context of your field, um, I think is really important. And well, I also just want to throw out there that yes, the system is definitely broken, but I also want to keep pushing on the idea that the end goal doesn't always have to be more academics. I mean, yes, you know, academia is wonderful if that's where you end up and that's what you want, but there are so many other places we could be and where what we know and the skills that we have matter a whole lot. There's a session tomorrow morning on religious studies scholars in the State Department. I mean, if you think that the U.S. government doesn't need more religious literacy, then you're not paying attention. Um, I've got friends who are journalists. I've got friends who are teaching in uh, secondary education, you know, people who are all over the place, and they're needed there. So yes, there's a talent bleed, but also we need to not just think about academia as a self-replicating system. It's also supposed to be educating people to go out in the world with useful knowledge that can be put into play elsewhere, I think. Yeah, to add on to that too, I think like to rethink writing the dissertation. Now, I haven't written one yet, so I don't know if I can really say this, but why not rethink it? You know, why not? And um, like, if what are, what's the goal of research too? And it's kind of a false dichotomy that I get all the time. Uh, I get this kind of from my parents a lot, even. They're like, I, I study nothingness or nothing, which is lots of good jokes, but at the same time, they sort of look at me like, what? <laughs> so, like, if I'm going to write a monograph on nothing, I have to find ways to make that communicable and why that matters. But there's this odd sense of that research itself doesn't matter. That's kind of why we get into this anyway. So, it's, But it's a false value question when we're denigrating the value of research in these questions, but we're also not advocating for our own value at the same time. So it's a communication issue, yeah. too. Yeah, and I, I definitely agree with all of the comments that you just said about the broken system and, you know, that academia has been having these issues for decades and we're, you know, sort of just now talking about it. But I guess what I'm also thinking about is that the dissertation hasn't changed in 
a hundred years. I mean, it's still in humanities we're writing a book length monograph in the same form that we were writing it a hundred years ago. And I and I guess I'm just thinking, um, you know, how can it change even a little bit to make ourselves more marketable in some other way or some other field um, or make those make those um, skills more more likely to be translatable to someone else. Um, so that's that was just my follow-up. Thank you, Beth. So I was actually going to respond to the conversation at hand because while we look at religion, uh, the doctorate of ministry program is doing something besides a thesis as we think of it now. Um, it also has a different level of course study. One of the issues is it's not as respected as the PhD program, and part of that is because they're not doing a normal thesis or a disrotation as we think of it today. So what does it look like as we try to reshape that? Will the few jobs that are out there actually accept that reshaping as part of the overall system? But looking at what has the doctor of ministry done as far as programs and projects besides just a giant thesis? So in. That was a great segue. Um, Another potentially controversial uh, question, um, but I also went to Boston University with Jason and was also told probably by a different professor, don't do the PhD if you can do something else. Um, and this was actually after I'd already left a PhD program, different one. So my question, I guess, is in short, is the PhD necessary to do applied religious social science? Is it suck it up and deal? And because you want to do something else that isn't teaching, but is um, still applied research, um, like think tank work, for instance, um, or can you put together a good CV without PhD at the end of your name? Uh, well, I can speak to the think tank world. I do think there's a ceiling in the think tank world for non-PhD folks that PhD people don't have, right? So you could end up being the second or third author um, on a paper, but the you know, principal's always gonna be the person with the PhD um, after, after their name. And you know, anyone running a department, and even I'm thinking like at Brookings, um, uh, it was like one place like that. Um, it, it more advocacy-oriented places, it's less true. Um, uh, but I think at the sort of, you know, kind of blue chip, kind of big research think tanks, it's going to be the PhD folks. But uh, but like Center for American Progress, probably less, that's probably less true um, over there. Although in their research area, now that I'm thinking about it, they've got three PhDs um, in their main research uh, area. area. Um, so I would think even even there, the we just had this with a, with a, a really talented um, person right out of an undergrad program who worked for us for three years. Um, and then ultimately, I think wants to do kind of policy stuff and um, number crunching uh, for policy work, uh, did decide she would never be able to be the principal person without the PhD. So she's actually going to the PhD program, not really intending to go into academia, but come back to the kind of policy world. I think this kind of gets to the question of what's the value of a PhD anyway? Um, and it's not just in the humanities either. My uncle is a chemical engineer and got a master's in it and then almost got a doctorate but thought, why do I want to get a doctorate and learn the math that only two people in the world know? And, but he phrased it in terms of content. I'm only going to be able to talk to two or three people. And if I phrase my area of study in that, 
you know, I do nothingness. And the way I talk about nothingness, I'm going to be able to talk with like five people in the world. But that's limiting the value of what a PhD gives you. So what's different about a PhD and the skill set you get in a PhD versus the one you get in a master's? And that's kind of something I've been trying to ask myself of, what does it mean to be in a PhD, and how is this different from my master's programs? And I think one is the, the self-directedness of it. You don't have anyone telling you what's the right thing to study or what's the right questions to ask. So in a way, for me, this degree is about formulating really in-depth and complex and nuanced research questions. So I'm a professional question asker that can then write a comprehensive thing that can answer those questions. So I think there's a level of difficulty and nuance that a PhD will give somebody that you're not going to get just from a master's degree. At least that's what I tell myself at night. I would agree with that, Jason. I do think that there's a depth of knowledge and a honing of certain skills, particularly the writing, the problem solving, and for me, editing. I did a great deal of editing for um, my boss and for other faculty in the department uh, throughout my PhD program. And you know, as Regina said, you know, you look at your writing when you start, and you look at the writing that you produced at the end, and it's worlds different. So. There's that, and I think you know it just sort of depends on where you think you might want to end up. Um, but the other thing is, um, Peter Manso made the point on last year's panel of scholars. Uh, Peter was the department administrator in the religion department at BU when I started as a student in 2001. He was also a student. Um, he took a master's and left. He published a whole bunch of books without a PhD. But at a certain point, he decided to go back and do a PhD, and he said, you know, that gave him a level of legitimacy when he walked into conversations he wanted to be part of that he didn't have without it. And he's now the first curator of American religious history at the Smithsonian. So it's, it's dual. It's both what Jason is talking about, that there's like a depth of not only knowledge, which is really valuable, um, but also the, the honing of certain kinds of skills in terms of research, critical thinking, writing. But also, you know, it adds that, that aura of legitimacy that Robbie's talking about. You know, people, and it, it signifies something, right? It signifies that you've put in that time learning those skills in that depth and breadth. Um, you know, it, it's shorthand, like any other letters after somebody's name to signify stuff you've done. And I think that's, this ties into your question about the book-length monograph. Do we change the format of it? Is part of that legitimacy and part of the skill set that you're developing is the, the see-through-itness of a PhD program that you can produce a large-scale project and document and see it through. Um, and that's a whole different set of skills that you're not going to end up at the end of a master's with. So even though there's, I think, some really, there's, there are benefits to a different format of the final product instead of a book like Monograph, that in and of itself, because that is, in the humanities at least, that's what's tied to the letters PhD. The letters PhD tell someone you have the skills to produce something of that size and of that breadth and of that magnitude, and that's usually a multiple years, we all, most of us realize, a very long project. So it also shows that you have the commitment to stick with it, the stick of the project. 
I'm gonna make one quick comment while you're moving the microphone because I'm gonna contradict myself here a little bit. It's mostly because of my wife's experience. So I, t I mentioned that my wife left a tenured position uh, and came to, um, and we both moved to, to DC where I had this job at a think tank, she did not. Um, and she had to spend a lot of time um, basically, and I think this is where a cover letter becomes really important for someone who has a PhD and is applying to things that don't really require a PhD because often people will see that PhD and go, oh, you know, they're going to stay here like six months. They're just in a holding pattern until they can get that academic position and they discount like your credentials. And so she had to kind of write, no, 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 like just kind of head that off, you know, at the beginning and say like, I, you know, I'm really interested in this job. Here's why I'm interested in it. Um, you know, I'm not really pursuing the academic thing. It turns out that she actually did end up back at GW uh, in, in, in an academic uh, position. But in, for that two-year period, she was having to basically explain to people why having a PhD wasn't something, uh, wasn't a, a knock against her in certain kinds of, of positions that she really wanted, you know, she would really, that kind of work she would really enjoy doing. Hi. Um, so I'm actually an undergraduate. Um, I'm a senior at DePaul University in Indiana. And so, you know, I'm definitely at a crossroads right now with graduation coming up, thinking about, like, do I want to go to grad school? Because I, I love religious studies. I love the discipline. I definitely have a topic that I could pursue in grad school. But then um, my professors make it sound like it would almost be easier to get a job now before doing any graduate work. Um, because, like, like, we're kind of, like you were kind of talking about, when you have a master's or a PhD in something like religious studies, you're almost like overqualified for a lot of business jobs. Um, so yeah, I, I was just wondering if you guys could, like, could speak to that more a little bit and just like any, any general advice you have for undergraduates that are sort of like torn between the two. Because I definitely feel like I have to abandon one for the other. You know, I can either go to grad school, um, be on that track, or get a job in like the business world. Like there really is no like in between for me. What would you hope to do with it, the PhD? I, in business. I really don't <laughs> want to be a professor. Um, I, I couldn't see myself doing that. I just, I just love the discipline, and I would, I would go, I would do it for the experience itself. I think, I mean, I think one of the themes that's come up is that is a legitimate reason to go to graduate school, so long as you're aware yeah. that that is what you're doing. Um, the other thing I would say is that lives are long. Hopefully, generally speaking, in this day and age, I know. Many people who spent time in business, spent time in other careers, and I think we all here do as well, um, who then go back and, and do master's degree, PhD degree in other fields at later points in life. So it doesn't have to be an either-or proposition. That's what I, I guess I would say to an undergrad. Do the MBA and, and the MA at the same time. That's my advice. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, some good advice I got was it's not worth it if you have to go into debt. Yeah. So don't like get a scholarship or don't go, and uh, which is hard, right? It's, that sucks. So find places that'll pay you to go, and um, or you can do how I paid for my second master's was be a graduate graduate assistant. Like look up the like the athletics department and see like do they need or like any any place at the university and will they pay you to go part time to school and then pay you a stipend. You know, that's so find ways to get it paid for if you really want to do it. I just 
want to throw out there that all of us need to be very careful with that advice right now because of the rewrite in the tax code that's underway. Um, if the Republican tax bill goes through, they are going to start taxing tuition waivers for graduate research assistants and teaching assistants as income in the United States. So enjoy yourself in Canada. <laughs> so my advice is McGill has a great religious studies program and I would apply there. Um, I would piggyback no on that. I think everybody should take time off. I did not, and I really wish that I had, and I tell everyone, regardless of what kind of graduate program they're thinking about going into, take time off of school, go get a job, work out in the world, because it may be that you really love the religious studies stuff, but you may realize that the part of it that you love is really tied to something specific. Maybe it's a master's in public health. Maybe it's an MSW. Maybe it's a JD because you're really passionate about issues relating to religion and the interplay in the law. Um, but it's really hard to know what you would do with it if you haven't had a little bit of experience sort of like working out in the world and seeing how it might function. And uh, if you don't know what you're going to do with it, it's definitely not worth the debt. It's definitely not, especially, again, with the the chance that we're now going to start looking at, um, they're, they're talking about statistically up to $10,000 extra um, tax burden on graduate students in the US if this tax reform goes through. That's like $10,000 extra out of pocket. So that's a thing to be mindful of. I think, you know, I hear that, um, taking time off. I didn't take time off. Um, I did get a scholarship, so I think the scholarship advice, you know, if you've done well in your program and you have professors that will really write a letter for you, um, Harvard Divinity School is sort of an interesting place, you know, it's a divinity school connected to, um, you know, a ridiculously well-resourced university, and I think there's a lot of people that come from undergrad or maybe having a year or two years off. And um, they are using that master's as an exploratory uh, thing, which, which sometimes isn't a great plan, except um, if you put yourself in a place uh, like Harvard that has uh, you know, great internships and great opportunities and you can take classes ac you know, across the university, sometimes you are going to learn things being exposed to all of that uh, that you wouldn't get otherwise and have opportunities come up that, uh, that, that wouldn't have come up if you were um, you know, working in an entry-level job of the kind that you get you know, with, with a bachelor's degree. So I don't, I, you know, I've, I've followed my heart, um, you know, uh, I think not blindly, but, um, but I have. And so you know, if it's, there's something about being able to do what you love when you're young and don't have um, other commitments in your life yet. But, uh, but definitely try to get someone else, try to have it on somebody else's dime first. That's really the best plan. <laughs> uh, I have a, just a comment and a question. Um, so I was just having a conversation with a friend before I came here. Um, she's in an odd position. She actually has a tenure track uh, faculty position, brand new. But she's, also, she's actually not done with her dissertation yet. Um, and she's recognizing that she's not sure that she's going to have the academic freedom uh, for her scholarship that she really wants if she were to stay in this particular position at this particular institution. And so we talked about the fact that um, 
you know, why, why are we getting the PhD? Why do we go to do this? And, and really, it's two different things. I mean, a, a, a faculty position, at least once you have tenure, is scholarship. And then there's this whole job. Right? <laughs> there's, there's a job. And so it, it might be teaching. Um, but maybe we should think about um, scholarship you know, as an objective, a critical, serious, deep scholarship, um, particularly critical scholarship, um, critical of systems, critical of ideologies, all that kind of stuff, and particularly as religious scholars. And then whatever the job is that supports that um, may or may not be, you know, a faculty position. Um, but I want to I want to speak up for the value of of in depth critical knowledge that we have. Um, and then my my question is with regard to think tank work. Um, okay, so if somebody was on purpose trying to get a job <laughs> with a think tank from uh, graduating from a PhD program, what would you look, how would you suggest someone go about that? Like how would they present themselves? Uh, what would the process be? Things like that. Uh, yeah, so it's, the thing. one thing I've learned about especially DC, um, that's the context I really know well, is it's like a big, small town. Um, so the thing is, if, if you don't have a connection in, you kind of just have to get to DC and get in the bubble, right, and kind of network your way in. Uh, there's very, it's very rare that someone would get hired from an open call. Uh, you know, there's job postings all the time. But most of those go to people who have connections with. So I think that's the thing is just realizing like uh, almost zero chance of getting hired from outside without a connection um, in. Um, and the so I mentioned that I had this uh, someone uh, emailing uh, or faxing around my because it was a, a long time ago uh, faxing around my <laughs> CV uh, and he was old too um, uh, to to places around town. But I was also doing a book. <laughs> Uh, some book research, and I was interviewing people in think tanks, which uh, actually, that's actually pretty, I didn't really think about it at the time as a kind of sneaky way in, um, but doing research that puts you in conversation with people who are in the space you might want to be is a really good door opener, right? Saying, you know, I'm doing a research project on this, I'd love 30 minutes of your time, um, and you, you know, it's almost like an inter informational interview uh, you know, I don't think you should be disingenuous about it, but if you generally have a way that a, that an interview with a person who's in the space would be helpful to uh, research, I found that to be a really good way of, of kind of making some connections that helps uh, in. But I, th I think it really is all about how can I get connected to someone. Um, the same thing goes for grants, by the way. Like, um, like half my job is to raise money to do research. I have still, in 10 years, never, ever, ever gotten a grant that came from our open request for proposal process. Um, the only time we've ever gotten funding is if I get, was able to get face-to-face -face with a program officer, have a conversation over coffee, and something got kind of written down on a napkin, uh, and that is what usually got the process going. But like, I, I've, we've just stopped actually applying for grants that are just open call kinds of things because the success level is just almost <laughs> nil uh, for those. Hi, thank you all. Um, this actually has eased my tension, which is really great. Uh, one of the uh, commonalities in, in the talks is writing for a non-academic audience. 
And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate in, in the break that I had between undergraduate school, wrote for a music publication called The Daily Vault, and then also worked the administrative side of uh, universities. So that's a fortunate aspect for me. But for those of us who are um, perhaps interested in either the writing, editing, financial, and management side of periodicals or more popular pub publication, general audience publications. Uh, do you have any insight into uh, not just the application process, but, but actually the possible connection between our education and doing so? I don't know that any of us are quite in the right field to talk about the ins and out of the publishing industry these days. Um, but I gather that's a popular one for people who are, who are looking to translate into other work. Uh, but, and, and what I have heard is that it's, it's also you know, who you know and, and how you network, um, that that same theme carries over into, into that industry as well. Yeah, just to, it's not related to uh, publishing at all, but I had a lot of religion professors who were also ministers, and they were always reminding me that, you know, can you preach that? In other words, <laughs> you know, are there simple takeaways that you've, you know, told them what you said, you tell them, and then you told them what you told them. <laughs> so, you know, keep it simple. And I, I practice on my parents all the time. So you just got to tell it to people and see if it makes sense. Um, we're having a breakfast tomorrow morning at 7.30, and I would suggest you come to that because I'm hoping, I can't remember if Jana Reese, who's a member of our working group, is mm -hmm. going to be able to make it or not. I hope so, though, and she's um, someone who has made her way through the publishing industry. Um, and it's going to be an opportunity to just, you know, have some <laughs> informal conversation with uh, those of the members of the working group who are able to make it and also, you know, other interested folks. If you search applied religious studies in the program book, it'll come up. Any other comments, questions, remarks for the good of the order? Hi, I just want to pass on something for, uh, about cover letters from the grad career services person at my university who's alt-act his way from an, an English PhD into that job. And um, he, he, an additional point uh, he added to that, kind of a cynical one, was sometimes even if you write that you don't want to be a professor, some employers don't believe you. So um, <laughs> one of the, uh, one very helpful thing you can do for yourself if there is a particular field that you feel like you want to work in is just start doing it. If you want to be in media, try to get involved with a local radio station or a newspaper or something like that. Or, you know, publishing, try to find an internship somewhere. Um, not to detract from what you said, but I just wanted to add that as well. And I will say from my own experience as well, start being willing to start at the bottom. Um, my experience, I'm in academic administration. and. Um, where I am, they will hire highly overqualified people for very low-level jobs, and it doesn't take very long for them to move you up. They want you to prove that you want to be there and that you're going to do good work in that space, and then they look to move you up very quickly. Um, so being willing to come in at, at a lower level than might necessarily feel good with a PhD. Um, and I have had the experience of having um, a hiring manager sit across a table from me in an interview that HR was really like super excited to send me into. 
um, and put my resume down on the table and they had written in the margins next to my PhD, good question mark. <laughs> um, wow. That's gonna happen. And I, you know, I have my elevator pitch about why I've made the decision to transition out of the expected academic path. That's important. I've also just accepted that there are going to be some people who aren't going to believe that no matter what I tell them. And it's, you know, going to be about finding a job that's a fit where they're interested in my somewhat idiosyncratic path. Um, I worked for an upper-level administration person um, who really loved to introduce me as a member of his staff who um, wrote a dissertation on Mormons and had worked at the Disney store. He really loved both of those things, you know? And so it's people who are interested in folks like us with a different path and a varied experience and, and a depth of knowledge that we're bringing about, you know, specific things that maybe they just find interesting or maybe they see value in more broadly because, again, religious literacy is important in pretty much every space, I think. Um, but, you know, it's not, gonna, it's not gonna be the first job you apply for. It's, you know, it's gonna take a little bit of work but it, and it's about finding not just the right way to pitch yourself but also the people who are open to that. One quick comment on that space. One thing I had to swallow um, that was hard to swallow when I was doing this consulting transition um, is that almost all the consulting contracts have this work for hire provision in them, which basically means that anything you write becomes the sole intellectual property in perpetuity for the place that you're writing for, and you don't get any authorship credit typically. Uh, and that was really hard as someone coming out of a PhD program and I have a voice and I have a perspective and uh, especially when the thing that I was writing had a public life uh, and would show up on a think tank website or would show up in an op-ed that hadn't didn't have that I had basically written didn't have my name on it uh, but those kinds of things I think um, was kind of part of the price of admission uh, that it did take me a while to kind of just wrap my head around it and become okay with it um, uh, but but I think after after with one organization particularly I did that for like two years um, wrote really good stuff that was like all over their materials but had no attachment to me and finally though after two years uh, convinced them to give me um, a like visiting fellow title uh, and then in addition to the stuff that I was writing uh, they would let me write on my own dime uh, stuff under that they weren't going to pay me to write that but that was kind of the deal we struck is I would write. Uh, some things that, and then put the other stuff up under my own name, but on my own on my own dime. That was kind of the compromise. So. But it was worth it to me to kind of get something up, um, kind of start developing a footprint. All right. Well, I guess everybody's ready to head out and get dinner, drinks. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us. Um, again, we have a breakfast tomorrow. We have two sessions tomorrow afternoon. Uh, one will be with faculty who are going to be discussing what they're trying to do, what they know they need to learn, where they're looking for more resources. Um, we would love feedback from scholars who are looking to make a transition and what they want to hear from faculty on these issues. And then we're also gonna have a panel with some career services professionals. Uh, Amy from Temple will be joining us, but also we're gonna have someone coming in from the University of Chicago's PATHS program that helps uh, folks in across the humanities look at non-academic career options. 
Um, and actually, the career services officer from Harvard Divinity School is going to talk about working with MTS students. She's great, um, by the way. So she's fantastic yeah, they have a and marvelous career services uh, office. Something that really sticks with me. She she pointed out to me when I asked her to do this panel um, that she doesn't work with doctoral students. She works with master's students. However, comma she had also said to me that. Um, something like 75% of MTS students matriculating into Harvard Divinity School think they want to go on for a PhD. And by the end of their MTS, only 25% of them do. And during that time, she works with a lot of them to find the other stuff that they want to do that makes them really happy and fulfilled, and they're out doing good work in the world. So I think we have a lot to learn from um, other programs besides you know, doctoral arts and sciences programs about what we can be doing to prepare ourselves to be outside of the academy. So I hope we'll see you tomorrow, and thank you again for coming.